Gillette is the speaking half of the celebrated magic duo Penn & Teller. Gillette is an intense presence who applies the same energy he's brought to his magic and juggling to his passion for jazz. While others in Las Vegas work to shorten their time on stage, Penn comes early to play bass for his Penn & Teller pre-show with his pal Mike Jones on piano. Penn & Teller's Broadway run this past summer included jazz throughout the show, an expansion from what I saw when Penn and I met in Las Vegas to record this episode of Jazz Inspired in 2003. Today we revisit that conversation where Penn reveals how he first fell in love with jazz. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Penn discussed his juggling with me, and how, like with any practice skill, the progress changes after a certain point. In Penn's case, this inspired his desire to learn something new, jazz bass. You get better really slowly after you hit a certain point. I mean, once you can do five clubs, uh, to get to six is going to take you, you know, years. And then you're also getting older during that. So that's going down. So you don't just get this gratification. And I got to be 45 and... um, uh, I wanted to do something I didn't know how to do. And that's not to imply that I could do everything. Uh, and we were doing a show called Sin City Spectacular. Uh, and uh, I had played uh, – I've been playing electric bass forever. But electric bass, uh, you know, um, rock and roll. I mean, never st- studied, you know, a couple of Carol Kay books. And, you know, uh, I could read music but not well. And, you know, mostly they would just say, you know, this is an A and you play that. And, and you know, this is an E and you do that. And I would, you know, play a lot of Velvet Underground stuff. And been doing that for 20 years, you know, forever. And never seriously. But I play still pretty often. And uh, we did a thing with the Smothers Brothers. And I became uh, one of the three people to ever be straight man to Tommy Smothers. It was, <laughs> it was Dick Smothers, it was Jack Benny, and it was me. And uh, I had to have an upright bass. We're going to do Jimmy Crack Corn. And, uh, you know, I had to play a, a G and a C. Uh, that was it. And uh, But I, had, I got to hold an upright, which I'd never done. And I got to use Dick's mother's bass, or I guess the bass they rented for Dick's mother's, which I'm calling Dick's mother's bass because it makes it much more romantic. And uh, I touched the bass, you know. And uh, it just felt right. And the only time I'd had that happen before was with a computer keyboard. You know, I'd always wanted to have a computer. I didn't like typing. You hear um, you hear artists talk about enjoying touching the paint. Mm-hmm. You hear um, you hear guitar players enjoy the feel of that. And I never had that at all. Uh, I would write, but I hated typewriters, and I would uh, I never enjoyed the juggling props or anything. I never enjoyed touching them. I never enjoyed touching much of anything, really. Uh, and how about uh, the electric? Uh, electric, no, nothing. I had no, no sort of uh, connection with it. And then when I touched the upright bass, I used to have lots of, uh, still do, I suppose, lots of trouble um, with pitch. Couldn't tell, uh, couldn't keep it in tune. So I thought that a that an upright would be impossible because uh, because the pitch issues would be there. And all of a sudden, uh, when I played just the upright bass, the in tune and out of tune made sense to me for the first time. And I also liked the way it felt. And there was something about the way I heard it, you know, touching touching me and uh, the vibration of it, which you don't get with an electric, that I found really powerful.
and Gillette on bass and Mike Jones piano on There Is No Greater Love. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest, magician Pendulette, loved to practice as a child, so learning a musical instrument was a natural. When I was 12 years old, it's all I did with juggling with cards. I just lived to practice. I'm a person, uh, Teller loves to rehearse, hates to practice. I love to practice, hate to rehearse. Uh, Teller would like to do all this practicing with people. I would like to do all my rehearsing alone. You know, if you just. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And uh, I love practicing. And I just liked it. And that was um, two years ago. And then uh, I think, and I, this is an awful uh, thing to say, and it can't possibly be true, but this is strictly for myself. Uh, I find that uh, I could not understand uh, either the intellectual or the visceral side of jazz without really playing it. And I started changing from playing rock and roll every week in my home to playing jazz. And a few jazz guys would show up and would be willing to work with a um, uh, with a novice, a beginner. What kind of jazz? Um, straight ahead, you know, right out of the real book. And uh, just reading that and, you know, the stuff Maury would work me through in the real book. And I got people to come over. And then I realized that if I got two friends of mine who were women to serve beverages topless, <laughs> there were more jazz guys come over and I said, you know, I said to one of my friends, you know, if you had larger breasts, we'd have a big band. We could go with symphony on that. And uh, Well, so, that's always an essential element of a jazz sure. experience. Well, they said it jokingly. I said, what could I do to make it more? Because, you know, I, I never had a drug or any alcohol in my life. There's never been a beer in my home, never any drugs. That's an important thing. But there thing. have been topless women serving drinks. Those are not the same. There's a cat named Mike Close in town who's a wonderful close-up magician and also a jazz uh, piano player. Mm. Something's kind of like Todd, has mm -hmm. that same kind of piano and, and magic thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I was talking to Mike Close, and he was reading liner notes on an Oscar Peterson record. And it said the only guy who can play like Oscar Peterson is in Vegas and named Mike Jones. <laughs> we thought, that's weird. That is. And so Close did kind of stalking. I mean, he, he <laughs> called the musician's union and lied and said he wanted him for a gig and where was he? Perfect. And then called him at home and scared Mike Jones to death because this guy was calling him for no reason. And we found out he was playing this uh, restaurant here in town, uh, just a lounge. And we went up there and um, uh, sadly but honestly, uh, people weren't really paying attention. Right. It was background music. I mean, you know that whole scene. Right. And uh, – and we heard him, and and uh, you know I was so new to jazz. I said, Jesus, he seems really good. <laughs> and, and Close said, you know, I've never heard someone better in person. Oh, I've never wonderful. heard someone this good. And he's playing while drinks are clattering and stuff. He needed those topless waitresses. He sure did. <laughs> so I started talking to Mike Jones, and I said to him, you know, you're you're really really underpaid here, and you should be a superstar. But, you know, uh, the last person in Vegas who had live pre-show music was Frank Sinatra. Everybody else puts a CD on. And so I talked to Teller. It took a lot of work. And I talked to the rest of our people and said, you know, a CD, you know, costs $12. And it's a one-time expense and you put it on and that's your pre-show. But I kept thinking that uh, being in a casino – uh, it would just give you a kind of class to have live music and take us uh, – take you away a little bit from the slot machines and the feathers. And uh, so I, I lobbied for this and, of course, uh, told Jonesy he'd be grotesquely underpaid 
but paid more than he was making now. You know, I mean, as, as you know, that's what happens in jazz all the time now. You're not going to get what you're worth, but we'll give you a little more than you're getting Exactly. Now. Well, that's a jazz life. And uh, so Jonesy was very happy to have people listening to him. And now he has, you know, has a, a thousand people – you know, on a good night, uh, 1,200, 1,300, uh, people who are waiting to see Penn & Teller uh, listen to him. And they really listen. It's a remarkable pre-show. It's almost an hour before that, you know. And he has some little stuff he does, uh, joking, having people come and check out the props and so on. And, of course, the real downside was, you know, it's, 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 that, it's that old joke of, you know, God's got this girl. Well, the good news <laughs> is you get to work here. The bad news is you get to play with a high school student. <laughs> and uh, so I play the first 45 minutes with Jonesy. And it's something that no one can experience. I mean, no one would get this. Mm. Uh, I'm kind of the joke, you know, how you make a how do you make a million dollars in jazz? You know, start with two million. Or I'm kind of the joke of you know you won the lottery. What are you going to do? Well, I'll keep working till, as long as the money holds. Up. <laughs> I have the money to play jazz. Jonesy every night, you know, six nights a week playing 45 minutes. I've, I've gotten good enough, I think, to not be noticed. Uh -huh. In art, in art, your first goal is not to be noticed. Exactly. Your next goal is to be noticed. And you can't do those out of order. Right. No, which most people do. <laughs> Some people do. Some exactly. people do them out of it's order. Sad. It's the first sad. thing you want to do is not be noticed and then be noticed. And so that's been, uh, that's been uh, jazz to me. And oh, it's fantastic. And how has it changed your performing your, in the show, Penn and Teller? Uh, well, it made me... Uh, well, in, in some very I, – I guess I, I want to immediately go to the, the deeper, more pretentious way. But I guess if I go to the superficial, it's better. There's more jazz in the show. <laughs> well, that's uh, one answer. Now give me the deeper uh, answer. I mean we, uh, we put in a um, – there's, there's a bit we put in, um, a bit that we um, – kind of a floating handkerchief thing, which is an old – hackneyed, horrible trick that we did a version of uh, 25 years ago and I loathed. I hated it. And um, 
I started thinking about it fresh. Oh, I was my dad's. My dad loved it, and uh, and he always wondered why we took it out of the show. And I started revisiting that, thinking about my uh, thinking about my dad and what he uh, might have liked about that, and then tying it in with the music. So Jonesy has gone from just doing um, pre-show to he, we put this other bit in where we decided that instead of having the um, the Carney voiceover on tape, which Todd Robbins uh, helped us write, mm-hmm. uh, we would do it live and have Jonesy do it. And since he was sitting at the piano, he would put accents on his piano. So now this piece that was a verbal piece with a Carney background has now become this uh, elaborate 20th century classical virtuosic piano piece with a vocal over it and a magic trick. And it's really, really funny because it's uh, it's that, you know, whatever sort of um, analogy you want to use, you know, an elephant gun and a mouse or something, all you really need is a little background piano. Mm-hmm. And people come out of the show and they've seen, you know, us catch bullets in our teeth and all these miracles. And they'll be going, Jesus Christ, what's that guy playing behind that gorilla thing? <laughs> <laughs> How many hands does he have? Is that a player piano? What's he doing? Uh, and he also there's a there's a fire eating um uh thing we do that I do with a with a woman that's this that uh Jonesy plays the piano for. Mm. It used to be kind of on tape and now it's live. And this new bit's going in and Jonesy's a very important part of it. And it also has helped me a lot. Uh I tend to be um very verbally oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would rather hear something described than see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no visual sense at all. I surround myself with painting and art, and I have friends who are artists to try to go through that. I mm-hmm. don't have a visual memory. I can't hold things in my head. Uh, uh, you know, if you tell me about a painting, most of the time I like it more than if I see it myself. And uh, Teller does all the way the lights look and all the way the sets look. And it's been the same way with music. Kind of anything that's kind of uh, slightly abstract, you lose me. The music that is a little bit uh, – that has a real easy intellectual description of it, you know, um, mm. Stravinsky, Schoenberg, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, e- even the serial stuff I have no trouble with, you know. Mm. Uh, Elben Berg's operas I have no trouble with. But just the basically this sounds good stuff, you know, uh, to put it in pop terms, the Brian Wilson stuff. No way to understand what's beautiful about that. And listening to instrumental music, which is what jazz is, which is what the bass is to me, has brought me around to be able to listen to the Mingus stuff Mm. and understand it without a translation.
Charlie Mingus on I'll Remember April. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is magician and bassist, Pangelette. I think I lack uh, all sort of natural talent and inclination, but uh, by working on it, uh, I've really been able to um, to enjoy and to experience uh, a whole aspect of art that was uh, that was lost to me. Mm. It's also a very interesting um, emotional and accepting thing. When you take up something at 12, 13, 14, whether it's uh, violin, whether it's juggling, uh, whether it's golf, you know, whether it's baseball, uh, somewhere in your fantasy – you can consider being the best in the world. Uh, uh, if you take up bass at eight, you could be Mingus. Mm-hmm. You could be Ray Brown. You know, we don't know. No one knows. And uh, really, uh, with with you know, outside of the bell curve, with the exceptions, not even anyone else can tell you. You know, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. can't really say, yeah, you're going to do it. You know, I mean, maybe if Ray Brown's your teacher, and you know, and and uh, and he, he he can pick up something like that. You know, you have a better leg up, but you don't really know. When you take up something at 45 years old, you know. You're not doing it to be the best in the world, and you know you're not doing it to be famous. And uh, without seeming um, uh, hor- horribly unpleasant, when I started doing card tricks at 12, uh, I could have been the best in the world. Now, you know, the race has been run, and I'm not. <laughs> but I, but I could have been. You know what I mean? I could have been a contender. Uh, but no, but at that time you can. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, at that time it's the no, black I know exactly box. what it's, you mean. It's you know, it's Schrodinger's cat. We don't know till we open the box. And when I started juggling, I could. And as a matter of fact, I was you know, astonishing juggler in the early seventies. Part of the best club passing team ever, you know, Mike Motion and Ben Gillette. We were the best. We were the first to do nine clubs. There was that that was very, very real. When I started doing comedy, we don't know. You know, I could have been Lenny Bruce, you know, whatever. When I started 45, it it is automatically and by definition a more accepting personal growth type thing. Mm. And, um, and that's a relief. For my personality, that was a huge thing to accept. Mm. You know, It's that moment when you realize you're not going to be on the Supreme Court, so they can take naked pictures of you with, you know, in-group sex. There's that <laughs> moment when you say, okay, I'm not going to be on the Supreme Court. I have this power. I'm not going to be Ray Brown. I can play scotch and soda. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I got to see uh, Ray Brown four nights in... Um, in uh, New York City, uh, I just got to see him. I went in there right after nine uh, eleven for all sorts of personal reasons, and uh, Ray was playing the Blue Note. And I went there, and I've got I've got to say this because I want this on record. And what, what I'm about to say, I want them to uh, to uh, to just pull and put as a wave file on the website or something because it's one of the proudest moments of my life. And I'm lying about it, which is what makes it great. Um, <laughs> Um, but you're not going to be on the Supreme Court, so it doesn't matter. I'll show you what I mean. I'll show you what I mean about this. I saw Ray Brown, and afterwards, um, one of the guys in the band said, "You want to meet him?" And I said, "Oh, I really would," you know. And uh, Ray Ray Brown is back there sitting down, and I, I walk in, and I go, "Oh, you know, it's amazing to hear you play." And it was just, it was an unbelievable experience. I I don't think I had seen many people that good at anything, you know, just effortless and with a great deal of gentleness. And he has power when he needs it. And there's, you know, um, uh, Bob Dylan said, you know, that his uh, goal was to play guitar without tricks. 
no mm. tricks at all. And Ray Brown doesn't do any tricks. He never plays anything fancy unless it's exactly what it needs, you know. Uh, so I, I, went, I was just in awe and I went, <laughs> he went to me, uh, yeah, Penn, yeah, you're a really heavy cat. You're a really heavy cat. And I said, well, thanks. Is you some sort of symphony dude, right? <laughs> And I said, uh, I said, uh, no. I, no. I said, you some sort of symphony bass player? I said, no, I, I'm not a symphony guy. He goes, you some sort of, uh, you're a very heavy cat. I said, I'm actually a magician. I, I work with an act called Penn and Telly. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't matter. The guys in my band said you were a heavy cat. That's good enough for me. Doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> I know you're a heavy cat. And it just – it was just so great. And then he went oh, on to say that God. he'd never had the guys in his band be more excited about someone in the audience. And oh. that was a thrill for him. And I just loved the fact it did not matter to him what I did. Right. I was at some sort of level that was okay with Ray. So I thought that if I ever get to put out, you know, a bass record, I'll put him in the back. Pendulette, a very heavy cat. Ray, <laughs> Ray Brown. Brown. <laughs> Doesn't matter. He wasn't talking about bass. He wouldn't mean that. But uh, Ray Brown said, very heavy cat. And he said it didn't matter what I did. Exactly. I was just going to be a heavy cat no matter what I did.
Ray Brown on bass and Oscar Peterson on piano on Love is Here to Stay. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway & Sons and from East Hampton Indoor Tennis, eight indoor and 20 outdoor courts in a quiet, beautiful park-like setting. Visit ehit.ws for more information. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired free on iTunes and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Stride Queen. To find out more about my CDs and where I'm touring and to sign up for our email newsletter, visit judycarmichael.com. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970 on the web at jazztimes.com. My guest, magician Penn Gillette, has a very specific philosophy for his shows with partner Teller. When we do the bullet catch, I mean, right. 12 people have died doing that trick on stage. I mean, that's the most dangerous trick in show business. And one of the things I'm most proud of with Penn and Teller is that no one has ever been hurt working with us. And I use a, I use a pretty, uh, pretty strict definition of hurt. Mm. I, I don't mean hurt. I mean something that you still feel three weeks later or right. they put you in the hospital overnight. Just a simple line there. Uh, no one's ever been hurt. And uh, we expect people to laugh at danger and suffering and pain, the depiction of that, uh, never the real. And if we had an injury, it, our, whole, uh, our whole philosophical house of cards collapses because once you've been hurt, then it's no longer we're laughing at death. It's then we're part of the pain. I mean, that's the big misunderstanding people have about um, the depiction of violence in art is that they think that there's actual violence there or celebration of it. There's never is. It's a celebration of life and health. It's a celebration of a lack of violence. You know, people say, you know, in Die Hard 2, uh, 700 people die in airplanes. That's not true. Nobody died in Die Hard 2. And uh, that's really important distinction that people just kind of gloss over. So in our show, in order to make that true, in order to make it so we will never get hurt, in order to make it so that, as Houdini said, this is a Houdini quote, he would do ne- he would never do anything more dangerous than sitting in his living room. Mm. Uh, it's really important. 
And uh, so uh, the real improvisation, the stuff that I believe does not exist in comedy, the stuff where you're really coming up with a new idea on stage cannot happen in the Penn and Teller show. Um, it's debatable. And I listening to a lot of jazz, you know, um, if you wanted to get really deep into it, you're talking about, I believe, in soloing uh, much more often something more akin to collage uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and the placement of ideas. Uh, and I don't think that's at the level. I mean, when you're talking about improv in comedy, you're certainly not coming up with new words. But I don't know what level we're at there. I'm not even sure you come up with new ideas. And uh, But the flow chart can be enormous. I mean, the choices that I have for where I, where I can go, uh, there are bits in the show where there are, you know, uh, 60 lines I'm choosing from for mm-hmm. that one moment. Uh, but pretty much the show is pretty rigid and we're trying to do it perfectly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And because we're two people and because the stuff we're doing is complex, there's not another room – there's not room to really take another course uh, to, to overextend the analogy. Uh, occasionally I do. I mean there will be something that will happen in the theater where I will do three minutes that uh, is not any way on script. But that's not where the jazz influence uh, came. I found – that because I talk in the show for 90 minutes, um, I found that I was thinking a little bit more about breathing and phrasing. And I was thinking a little bit more about how when you listen to a lot of sax players, where the breaths are and you listen to Sinatra, who I know is probably not really jazz. but listen to I think of him as jazz. I always do. <laughs> where, all the, where all the breaths are. And I started and I don't think anyone but Teller – uh, would ever notice this. But I started saying, well, you know, if I take a deeper breath here, I can take this comedy idea and do it all in one breath without the breath in the middle there. And I can go a little longer on this word and I can get away with this as my slight New England accent and not as an affectation. And maybe I can slide this a little more and maybe I can do that. And let's try going to the end of the sentence without a breath. And uh, let's try pushing the rhythm of the speaking just a little outside of the envelope. And, and you have to be very careful because if the audience gets the feeling you're no longer talking to them, then once again, the whole thing crumbles. Uh, but you have some movement in there. And, you know, you can draw any analogy you want. You know, you still, you still have to be in tune. You still have to be, you know, whatever Yeah, but it's very similar though, what uh, you're saying. But I've been thinking a lot about that. And I also have been trying and I, I the temptation – to just state that I'm doing this is overwhelming. Uh, but I'm not going to because I, I think I'd rather tell the truth on this. Um, I'm trying to come up with ideas for Penn and Teller that are a, uh, a little less um, – and I'm using this uh, just to separate it from visceral – a little less intellectual. Uh, I usually uh, – when I'm – pitching an idea to Teller and talking with Teller about it, I usually have, you know, what it means, what it's saying, what all the beats are. And I'm trying to get images that I find interesting and working them in. And the, the thing that we're doing with the jazz in the show, uh, this this moving tissue paper, this thing we call air sax, where uh, Jonesy's playing piano, I'm playing bass, and Teller's playing a sax. But there's no sound in the sax except for uh, uh, the um, – uh, the, ticking of the keys and the the blowing of the wind through it. There's no reed, uh, which I'm, I've always loved the – I forget the name of it now, but the platinum, the, the, the Verez piece that's for the platinum flute. Right. That, that middle section there that just clicks. And I've been interested in that. 
And so Teller's not actually playing the sax, but we do uh, uh, the Penn and Teller theme written by Dr. Stockdale, uh, Gary Stockdale. We do that uh, as a straight jazz piece, four choruses, you know, head, head, and then trading fours. But when Teller does his four, what he's doing is he's blowing the sax and moving his fingers, and there's a piece of tissue paper, uh, colored tissue paper, that's moving with that. And at first, it almost seems like the physics would work, that it's actually the air currents that would blow it. But soon you realize that, of course, even at first it wouldn't be true. But the first moment is, could they be actually, you know, a small stream or something? And there's the clicking. And we brought in Gary Hypes to actually play uh, sax solos in all those places and taped them. And then we taped uh, Gary Hypes playing those same solos without a read. So the teller could learn the breathing and the, and, oh. the, and the ticking. And then we tried to make the movement, the magical movement of the paper, kind of match the stuff that, oh, that Gary played. Uh, so it is a, uh, a bit that is um, uh, a little more uh, abstract than most mm, of the Penn & Teller very stuff. Very poetic. And uh, this, the idea is that when sax players have been you know, moving around in the past, the reason they're moving like that, you know, Sun Ra's sax player rolling around the floor, is that he's actually seeing this thing moving around that you could never see before. And for some reason, the Penn & Teller show you actually can. Sun Ra on Images. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is magician Penn Jeanette. When you have a two-person group where you have complete power, and Teller and I both have 100% control, it's not diluted because we've been together so long that if Teller gets a nutty idea, I push him. No one holds them back, you know. Uh, I don't think you can do that with a four- or five-person group, but you can certainly do it with two. If the, if the group's going to work for 27 years, you're going to be able mm-hmm. to do that. So when I just said I'm learning to play bass, you know, Teller was like, well, we've got to put an upright bit in the show because you look so good with it. And that's Teller's point of view. You know, you're six foot six, you know, 270 pounds. Stand next to a bass. That I have to say, even <laughs> I, I thought the same thing. I was thinking if ever there's a person who should have played bass, yeah, you're I mean, the man. I have the, uh, I have the hands. I look good with it. And so we had uh, together, uh, Gary Stockdale and Maury um, wrote a bass piece that I, could, uh, that I could learn and put in the show. It's about a minute and 15 seconds and covers a big escape from a box that Teller's doing. And uh, they wrote it, I mean, brilliantly. It was written exactly to what I was okay at. It was written just beyond where I was when we wrote it. Perfect. And, uh, so I get, I get to do that. So now there'll be, um, there'll be two uh, upright bits in the show. And there was another bit that I played electric on that uh, I moved over to, uh, actually Maury moved mm-hmm. over to upright for me. And um, so it's been, it's been more in there. But you know, it's just every night. And of course, you have to remember, uh, 
how much I must be loving this. I mean, Teller gets into the theater at quarter of nine. No, I, I get in at seven forty-five. No, no, <laughs> believe me, that occurred to me. That occurred to me. Every other, every other performer in Vegas is trying to get his shows cut down. I mean, Lance Burton is trying to do you know seven shows a week instead of eight, and he's trying to cut down everything. And oh yeah, and they show Roy, up at the last minute. Siegfried Roy trying to get on stage as little as they can. You know, Celine Dion, of course. Doesn't even go on stage. Makes it a lot easier. There's a big TV, but <laughs> but, um, but you mean she's not here? Oh no, she's you, actually. You here, heard but, it here, folks. But she's only, not even here. Only for a minute or two. Did not, you make not, her disappear? Not so should notice. Did you two make her disappear? <laughs> you can only use our powers for evil. Oh, okay. That would be doing good for the world. Uh, but I'm actually uh, finding a way to make uh, you know a 90 minute show run uh, two it's and a half very hours. Very funny. <laughs> talked about how you come to things from a very intellectual base, although as we're talking, it's obvious that that's changing a lot. Yeah, well, you know, I I used to be really nuts. I mean, in the uh, for real serious music and, uh, you know, the noise music and the punk music and the stuff that it was uh, that I really, really enjoyed, I would sit down with an album and often have a, uh, have a notepad with me. 
and take notes and listen to things again and read stuff about it. I mean, I was the I was the kind of uh, listener that I think a lot of people really wanted. I wasn't someone who just, you know, get up and dance, you know. Uh, and I was a huge Velvet Underground fa- fan. And the Velvet Underground, uh, uh, as I became, you know, as I became friends with Lou Reed, Lou Reed said, you know, you're what I'm always looking for. You're the Velvet Underground fan that never did drugs. <laughs> I could point to you forever in interviews and they say it's drug music and say, what about Penn? Exactly. And uh, he was actually listening, not just tripping. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so uh, I would really listen carefully. I mean, a new a new um, uh, album would come out and uh, I didn't just put it on, you know, and kind of get used to it. I would sit down with nothing else happening, you know, feet flat on the floor, you know, in a chair at a, at a reasonable volume. You, know, you are a rare and, listener. And pay real attention. And then on top of that, in a whole different way, I always have uh, music going whenever I'm writing. Uh, I always have uh, music going, and it's really funny. I mean, that has changed. You know, as I'm working on, uh, I'm writing, you know, book or something. Uh, uh, it used to be you'd put on the stuff I was really uh, comfortable with, you know, mm. music from my youth. You know, put, mm. on, put on Blonde on Blonde or something, and um, and just let that kind of flow over me. Even though it's a lot of words, it never confused me because mm. I knew them all. I owned them, you know. Uh, I didn't have to ever strain, you know. I mean, I can I can, I can, can start reciting Blonde on Blonde now and go all the way to the end of Saturday Lady of the Lowlands. I can do all those lyrics, you know, in order so that wasn't distracting. But now I find that I really like, uh, I, oh, I also used to, uh, I mean, to, to, to be fair, I put on a lot of um, Stravinsky and occasionally Bartok when I was writing. Um, but since the jazz stuff, I find that uh, um, just trio and quartet stuff, you know, those big – and I, I forgive my ignorance. Uh, I, I've certainly copped to it enough. But I have a few – those big stupid box sets of Coltrane, you know what I mean? And uh, I'm afraid I just kind of pile them in the CD player and let them play, which means I'm never going to be more conversion in it because, you know, no, I don't know whether it's I don't know whether it's take 7 of, you know, of of of, uh, of CD4. No, I and, think <laughs> I actually think I can say as a pianist myself, I'm happy when people just say I just loved it and I don't even know why. That's nice too. You know that you've reached their heart. Thank you. 
62 recording of Nancy with the Laughing Face. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is magician Penjolette. You know, you have another project that to me seems like a very jazz project, your your film, your documentary. Yeah. Uh, and I you can, know why I say that, uh, sure. I think. As Describe fact, that. I can, I, think I can tell you the pitch. You know, uh, we've got 85 comedians uh, on tape uh, done by just the two of us, uh, Paul Provenza and myself, with, uh, you know, DV what you would call home equipment. Of course, you know, home equipment now is better than they used on TV five years ago. But we'll call it home equipment still because it's you know it's under two grand, um, so it's got to be home. Um, you got to pay more than that <laughs> if you want to be professional. Oh, good! I know the definition. Now. Um, and uh, I would call up, you know, uh, Drew Carey and Robin Williams and these people, and I'd say, you know how you always hear jazz musicians blow over the same changes. You can hear everybody do a blues, hear everybody do that, uh, and you never hear comedians tell the same joke. And uh, there's something wonderful about being able to put on, you know, you, you know, you don't know what love is. You're recording by uh, by Sonny Rollins and by Coltrane, and and same instrument, same song, and hear what they're doing. I don't want to I don't want to make this a competition and say there's a level playing field, but there is a canceling out of extraneous stuff. And I said, you know, you never hear comedians do that. So we'd like to get on tape every comedian. Telling the same joke. And uh, and I said uh, – it started out small. It started – we were probably going to get like you know 20 of our friends to do it. And then I talked to George Carlin. And when I said, you know, you hear – I said to him, you know, George, you hear jazz musicians uh, blow over the same changes, but you never – and he went, oh. You are not smart enough to get this idea. You're going to do comedians doing the same joke. How come? Why you? Why couldn't someone smart think of this idea? Okay, it's yours. What can I do to help you? You know, you're just the Hulk who breaks instruments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, but I mean, they got it. They understood it bef- bef- before I finished. I started the analogy, and they understood where I was going. And uh, you know, we had proof of concept instantly. Because you have that moment, you know, and people who know jazz will tell you, and I, I mean, using the using the sax is cheating. People will tell you they can hear one chord on a piano and tell who it is. You know, you can tell Monty Alexander, and not from phrases, but just from the, the sound. You know, it's in the fingers. I mean, I can tell when I'm in the other room and there's different piano players. I can tell when Jonesy sits down at the piano from the first second. And it's not from recognizing what he does when he first sits down. It's just the, the sound. Mm. And we really wanted that in comedians. So we had them tell this um, absolutely filthy joke called the aristocrats, which you could never tell anywhere. The whole idea of it is how dirty you can get. It's a competition to see how nasty and dirty you can get. And uh, it goes back forever and it's never really told to the public. It's a joke that people tell backstage. I mean, whether you're, you know, whether it was Myron Cohen or Lenny Bruce, it's a joke that they talked about and told, told backstage. And um, we didn't know how it was going to work. And it's amazing because, you know, now we have 
85 comedians. We're going to edit down into 90 minutes. So no one is telling the joke, right? But all you need is that snippet. I mean, we, we did the Smothers Brothers, and there's just – they tell the whole joke, and it's beautiful. It's very, very funny. But there is a moment when Tommy turns and looks at uh, Dickie, and Dick turns and looks at him that is the entire Smothers Brothers career. You don't need anything else. And and, and this is not in any way uh, um, diminishing what they've done. It's actually saying that's how great they are. It's fractal. The All the information is in every little second, you know. And, you know, you get Robin, you know, Robin uh, out on the beach behind his house, who just goes, you know, a guy, go, and you, you're there. You already know it. You know, Gilbert Godfrey. You know everything. <laughs> you just hear that, and you, you know what's funny about Gilbert. And, of course, the the nightmare is editing it. We have. Oh, uh, I was thinking that. We have, I believe, 30 hours of unique stuff. Now, it's all on three cameras. So 30 hours, that means 90 hours. And we're trying to, to get it down, and it's just it's just glorious. And it absolutely is uh, the idea of jazz. It is the idea of trading fours, which is also where that idea of, you know, Gilbert and I doing Who's on First came from. The idea that, well, you know, um, the, the way you'd say it in rock and roll terms, it's the singer, not the song. Up at dawn and sleepy and yawning, still the taste of wine. Cause I remember your mind and I got a world that's fine What's before me, routines that bore me Punch the clock at eight Then I remember your mind And I got a world that's great Atom bombs, Cape Kennedy and false alarms Half the universe is up in arms So I flip a little two until I'm holding you What's the hassle? I'll fight the castle. We can live like kings. If you remember your mind, then I got a world that you got a world that we got a world that swings. Got no mansions, got no yacht. Still, I'm happy with what I've got. Cause I remember your mind. And I got a world that swings. I got the world down the string. Sitting on a rainbow, got the string around my finger. The string reminds me you're mine, and I got a world that swings. Atom bombs, Cape Kennedy, and false alarms. Half the universe is up in arms. So I flip a little blue until I'm holding you. What's the hassle? I'll find the castle. We can live like kings. If you remember your mind, then. I got a world, you got a world, he's got a world, she's got a world that swings. I got a world that swings, you got a world that swings. Any way you look at it, I've got a world that swings. Mel Torme on We've Got a World That Swings. My guest, magician and bassist Penn Gillette, wanted me to include this song in our show today because before he knew much about jazz, his view of it was Jerry Lewis's spoof of a jazz singer in the film The Nutty Professor, where Jerry's character sings this tune. 
when he drinks the potion and comes off his buddy love. You know, up at dawn is sleepy and yawning, still the taste of wine. And uh, I love that song. And that was, you know, that lounge type stuff was in some way. I mean, obviously, I wasn't that stupid. But in some way, that was a big part of jazz to me. You know, and um, so when I found out that uh, – that, uh, you know, you obviously can't get the Jerry Lewis version and you wouldn't want to. But when I found out uh, from a web search that Mel Torme had covered that song from The Nutty Professor, uh, I thought, well, i got to have this. So the reason that that's there, first of all, yes, Mel Torme is great. But it's a little bit of a joke because that's the Jerry Lewis song. He drinks the potion, he becomes Buddy Love, and he sings, I've Got a World That Swings, which has, you know, which has the middle eight, atom bombs, Cape Canaveral and false alarms, half the universe is up in arms. What the hell are they talking about? <laughs> and Mel Torme, in, 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 a, in, a, in a bid for petty honesty, changes Cape Canaveral. And the phrase Cape Canaveral is a swinging phrase. It's a jazz phrase. He changed it to Cape Kennedy. Why? Because he doesn't want people to think he recorded it before the Kennedy assassination? (laughs) So you'll hear Cape Kennedy in this, changing your mind to Cape Canaveral. Cape Canaveral, much better. Much better. Much better. (laughs) Well, I think you swing. This has just been fabulous. I've loved every minute of it. Great music, too. This is lots of fun. Thanks. Thank you so much. You've been listening to my conversation with magician and bassist Penn Jeanette. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired from iTunes or at TalkShoe.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one. From my CD, High on Fats, and other stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with my Cashem on sax and Chris Borey on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway and & Sons and Sag Harbor Florist. Visit sagharborforest.net. Additional support is provided by the American Hotel in Sag Harbor, New York. Learn more at theamericanhotel.com. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired free on iTunes and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Stride Queen. Jazz Inspired goes to Kiowa Island, South Carolina, February 22nd through the 24th, 2016, with interviews and performances on stage. I'll have pianist Bill Cunliffe with me, saxman Harry Allen, guitarist James Chirillo, and bassist Pat O'Leary, along with author Al Green, who will talk about his new biography of his father, bassy guitarist Freddie Green. February 28th, I'll have Grammy Award-winning guitarist John Jorgensen with me at the Clayton Center for the Performing Arts in Maryville, Tennessee. We'll talk about his long association with Elton John and his new three-CD release, which features rock, bluegrass, and jazz. John and I had a band together early in our careers, so there'll be lots of music making as well. For more information, go to jazzinspired.com. Today's show was recorded at KUNV Las Vegas by Ben Wilson.